What once popular brand did you most hate saying goodbye to? One brand that pops in, my, in mind is Polaroid. I think that's a brand that it really conjures up uh, an image of a, of a very unique point of difference, right? This was the very first Instamatic camera. And uh, over the years, obviously, with technological advances, it lost this unique point of difference, and it didn't actually adapt and adjust the times. And it's really uh, been relegated to a, a brand in the graveyard, so to speak. Welcome to Back of Napkin the podcast created in honor of that great tradition of big ideas doodled on little pieces of paper, where we here at Fleischman Hillard are passing a napkin to top marketing leaders who will sketch out what's on their minds about the topics that are on ours. Welcome to Back of Napkin. I'm your host, Candace Peterson, Global Managing Director of Brand and Consumer Marketing at Fleischman Hillard. I've got to say, I'm kind of a brand nerd. Studying the art of branding has been a lifelong pursuit of mine. I actually remember as a kid using my dad's old Super 8 camera to film make-believe TV commercials I drummed up. And like those early memories, many of the brands I grew up with have faded away with time. Toys R Us, Gadzooks, Walden Books, Circuit City, those are just a few. What was it that made those brands disappear while others have thrived? With me today to answer those questions and others is Mitch Duckler, author of The Indispensable Brand, Move from Invisible to Invaluable. Welcome to the show, Mitch. Thank you, Candice. It's great to be here with you. Mitch, in your book, you talk about seven factors that have forever changed brands. What are some of those factors and which ones did brands like Circuit City and Walden Books just not see coming? Yeah, in the book, as you mentioned, I I call out seven factors that led to Uh, the condition that I I call brand monotony. They are technological advances, uh, proliferation of choice, changes in distribution, uh, changes in media and communications, an increase in the amount of information that's available in society, uh, enlightened and empowered consumers, and then the behavior of marketers themselves. So those seven have collectively resulted in brands, I think, being virtually indistinguishable from one another in, in many categories today. And the ones that you mentioned, when you, when you talk about the likes of a Circuit City and Walden Books, uh, while I think there may be touches of each of those factors, I, I would point to technology and changes in distribution. So if you think about those spaces, what has happened to them? Well, the advent of the Internet and certainly uh, new channels that the Internet uh, represents is, is a big factor of um, the demise of those brands. All of a sudden, Circuit City and, and Walden Books is competing with Amazon.com and other online retailers, and they really weren't able to maintain the relevance and uh, keep pace with them. So it's interesting, the premise of your book, and it's how to move brands from indistinguishable to indispensable. You talk about some of the disturbing trends of brand monotony. What do you mean by that term? Well, brand monotony, quite simply, is what I would call a virtual inability to distinguish between brands, even leading brands, within almost any given category. Um, I often tell uh, marketers, my clients, if you or if I were to remove the brand name from your packaging, from your product's packaging, would consumers be able to tell me, and keep everything else in place, by the way, would consumers be able to tell me which brand that is? And that really, to me, is the sign of a strong brand. You don't need to see the name on a package label to know it. You can tell from virtually every other uh, aspect of that 
package and that product offering in general, what brand it is. And I think that is uh, uncommon today. It's not something that we see very often in even uh, some of the best brands. Do you think that this idea of brand monotony is reversible? Yeah, I absolutely do. In fact, if you go back to the seven factors that I talked about uh, a few minutes ago, the seventh factor is marketers themselves. And what I mean by that is I believe marketers have inadvertently contributed to brand monotony through largely assuming more of a copycat mentality. And I think a lot of this has been brought about because of the digital age and, and digital activation in particular. Um, I think with the um, the advent um, and, and the, the sudden emergence of the internet and e-commerce and uh, digital marketing in general, social media in particular, uh, marketers are just overwhelmed. They become overwhelmed and they're constantly trying to keep up with the latest and greatest on every platform imaginable, which is admittedly very difficult to do. So what have they done? They've resorted to a few things that I talk about in the book. They resort to tactics over strategy, right? So they automatically divert to activation and to execution without necessarily thinking about the brand positioning and the broader brand strategy um, that is supposed to underlie it. So what that automatically leads to when you have marketers that are defaulting to tactics um, versus um, strategy, that leads to commoditization as well as copying one another. So once again, when you are having trouble keeping pace with technology, with new activation platforms, with new digital technology, what do you do when you don't understand it? You copy others. Again, these are all just um, telltale signs, really, of monotony when brands are, are acting out of tactics versus strategy and copying one another instead of innovating. Yeah, I must say your comment in the book and what you're you've just been saying that brand managers are reacting and responding to what they think customers will want. And in the process have taken to copying one another really strikes a chord with me. Having recently been a judge at the Cannes Lions, while it's true, we awarded some really incredibly powerful and unique work there. There was a swath of entries that seemed eerily similar to one another. In my opinion, every one of those brands grabbed hold of a similar social cause. And as a result, not a single one of them did a good job of standing out. So talk to me about how brand positioning can make your brand indispensable. Well, brand positioning is really the the foundation of any differentiated brand. Uh, if you follow the best practices in, in brand management, you start by identifying a unique and compelling point of difference. Um, that represents your brand positioning. And then from there, that positioning, that single um, unique point of difference needs to be reflected in every aspect of your brand, right? The product and service offering itself, the experience that it delivers, everything needs to follow that, that positioning. So if you don't have a differentiated brand positioning and a unique strategy to begin with, no matter how well you're executing or activating against it, um, you're, you're not going to be successful in terms of building an indispensable brand. So talk to me about how a good brand positioning can help brands avoid this trap. Well, brand positioning, again, is the foundation of any solid brand strategy. Um, if you don't have a unique point of difference, a differentiated positioning, no matter how well you're activating or executing against it, you're bound to have an undifferentiated brand or you're bound to be in what we've been talking about brand 
monotony. So it, it all starts with and into with a differentiated brand positioning. And one of the things that I talk about in the book and that I, I very often coach clients on is um, identify what your brand's unique point of difference is. And Think about more than just the benefit, right? The temptation is to think about what is it that my brand does for or what sort of value or utility does it provide that makes it different. And sometimes that's differentiating and other times it's not. In some categories, like I used to work in the hair care category, for example, um, it was really all about the benefit was all about beautiful hair, right? And uh, if you didn't deliver beautiful hair, if your product didn't your shampoo conditioner products didn't result in beautiful hair, you, you really weren't even a player. So there was nothing differentiated about it. So what did brands do? A lot of the leading brands talked about how they give beautiful hair, right? It might be through their formulation or a secret ingredient. A Pantene Pro-V through ProVitamin uh, gives beautiful hair, right? That brand is differentiated not based on the what, which is generic, but on the how, how it actually delivers that benefit. So that's an example of a how. Um, another example is through why for purpose. So there's been a lot of talk, um, especially in the last five to 10 years, and, and uh, Simon Sinek, I think, triggered a lot of this with his um, Start With Why around purpose branding, right? Companies in particular defining their purpose and using that as a basis for um, a point of difference and for a brand positioning. Um, again, this is more than a mission statement. A lot of companies have a mission statement or define a purpose, but this is actually positioning your brand around your why, your reason for existence. So that's another thing that might make you different. And then uh, the final one that I talk about is your who or the, your persona. So some brands are so unique, so distinct, uh, very often shaped by a founder like Richard Branson in, in, in Virgin. Um, that their persona really defines that brand and, and represents what's truly different about it. Mountain Dew is another brand. When you think about Mountain Dew and the types of people um, and, and that use the mountain or that consume Mountain Dew are very, you get a very clear picture of that brand through its users, right? Young, male, active, extreme sport, video gamers. You get a picture in your mind around who are the, the most frequent consumers of the brand, and they almost define the essence of that brand um, through that means. So those are just a, uh, four examples. Again, the what, the how, the who, or the why. Uh, it doesn't have to be the what. And, and, and take a look at your brand and think about what is it that makes it truly unique and differentiated, and lean into that when you define your brand position, that point of difference. Great. So the what, the who, the how, and the why, um, those are four really interesting factors. Um, I'm curious if you can dig a little bit deeper with me on this um, and, you know, starting kind of with the notion of being single-minded, you know, thinking about today's brands and the fact that they truly want to be all things to all people, how do you reconcile being single-minded? Yeah, that's a great question. I think this is one of the challenges for brand managers today that didn't exist, at least not nearly to the same extent, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Uh, in the early days of brand management, it was all about the customer or the consumer. And you positioned your brand around or with them in mind. And I think nowadays most brands realize that there's a lot of stakeholders that really influence their ultimate success. Um, the customer is still a critical stakeholder, obviously, and, and they need to be the you know, front and center when you're positioning your brand. But then all of a sudden, you need to start thinking about employees, 
vendors, investors, the media, um, all of these different stakeholders really play a role in, in determining the success of your brand. So how, to your point, you know, how do you develop a single a positioning that is single-minded yet relevant to each? And what that entails is, again, going back to that salient idea that we talked about earlier, what is your point of difference? And then developing that as your positioning, but then translating it in a way that's relevant for individual stakeholders. So again, it's not changing that idea, it's keeping that single-minded idea, but then talking about it through the lens of those different stakeholders, right? So what does being productive mean uh, or increasing productivity mean to a customer? And what does that mean to an investor? And what does that mean to um, employees and a vendor? It's keeping true to that single idea but then making it very real and relevant for individual stakeholders, again, without changing the intent of that idea. And right. it's not easy, right? It's, it's always a, ba a balancing act because you want to try to be as relevant as possible to different stakeholders, yet if you're not careful, you begin to change the essence of the brand by changing the positioning. So there's kind of this dance between being relevant and then being compelling, which is another thing that you had mentioned um, as being kind of part of that cri criteria. Um, relevancy and, com and, and compelling, you know, what does it mean for a brand's positioning? Yeah, so very often when we talk about differentiation, we talk about meaningful differentiation, right? So you could be different. You don't want to be different for the sake of being different, right? Um, we can we could build a five-legged table, right? And that would be very different. I don't know how, how compelling or relevant it would be because it would have very little utility and it might even be worthless, right? So that's where the word meaningful comes in. You want to be different in a very meaningful or very compelling way. And, and that's, again, finding that intersection. What is important to customers and consumers and how can you deliver it in a way that's unique? So, um, Again, that's really what we mean by compelling. It's not just differentiation for differentiation's sake, but being different in a way that's very compelling and valuable to your to your individual stakeholders. So next you say a brand's positioning needs to be differentiated. Um, I know we've kind of touched on that a, a little bit already, but how do brands avoid the trappings of, you know, your quote, um, brand monotony and accomplish this differentiation? Well, here again, I would go back to the, the point of difference conversation that we had a few minutes ago. So it is going back to identify, to think about differentiation more broadly, perhaps, than marketers have in the past, right? It's not just what you do, but how you do it, why you do it, or for whom. And, and leaning into the one of those four that is the most, as I said earlier, compelling for your brand and, and most differentiated. And having that really be the face of your brand. Um, if you, again, if all, there's only a certain number of benefits in any single category, you know, maybe two, three, four, uh, at most, um, very meaningful benefits. And um, there's a lot more competitors in virtually every category. So if every brand is relegated to, to differentiating based on that what, that benefit, you almost by definition are going to have monotony. You're going to have a lot of brands that look alike, sound alike, feel alike, et cetera. But when you think about differentiation the way I talked about earlier in terms of the what, the how, the who, and the why, you begin to identify other ways to be different, right, and other ways to be 
differentiated and compelling, right? So that's, that's really the key there. That's interesting. I'm actually sitting here thinking about a number of brands that are all offering a similar product, but what helps them stand apart is their why. Take, for example, some of the athletic brands today and what they're offering. A sneaker is a sneaker is a sneaker, yet how can one sneaker grab hold of consumers in a way that's unlike others? Of course, it's their why. Can you talk a little bit about brands that are similar in the product or service they offer, but do a great job in their brand positioning that helps them pull away from the pack? I think there are several great examples of um, in in all four of the categories I just mentioned, the, the what, the how, the the why, who. So um, I think a, a great example of a how brand is um, Tesla, right? So if you think about, and that's a great example, right? Any car, if you look at the benefit of an automobile is to get you from point A to point B, right? Uh, and if a car doesn't do that, it's really not, um, it's not even in the consideration set, but obviously the way Tesla does it, right? And, and you know, in a very, in, in uh, a very sustainable manner, in an environmentally friendly way, um, that is very, very different from other alternatives and it really defines that brand. That is a brand defined on its means, on a how, right? That's what sets it apart. Um, a great example of a Y brand uh, is Patagonia, right? And that, that's, that's a brand that I would argue people buy and are loyal to that brand almost as much, if not more so, for the company behind the products and services as the offerings themselves, right? They are all about um, environmental friendliness and sustainability. They're very, very vocal about that as being their driving cause, their purpose, their why, and everything they do really supports that notion. And it is a you know, hugely differentiating factor that defines that brand. Uh, another Who brand, I mentioned Mountain Dew earlier. I think another one is Warby Parker. If you think about Warby Parker, they really appeal to uh, a younger, more millennial, um, hip, urban crowd that um, you know, has a very high, um, high eye towards style. And there's when you think of Warby Parker, um, eyewear, that, that really, you, it conjures in your mind a certain type of user, and that user really is uh, a, something that sets that brand apart. People identify with the brand and with the users of that brand, and it makes it in many ways kind of a persona type or a who type brand. I like your example of Patagonia as a why brand. For years, Patagonia's positioning has been firmly anchored in environmental activism, yet Lately, when we've seen other brands try to adopt the same marketing mechanisms as Patagonia, these efforts fall flat and they're being criticized as forms of woke washing or other negative things. But since this has always been core to Patagonia's brand, they're able to do it with credibility because that's what consumers expect of them. So I think that's a really strong example. Yeah, and I think there are two important points about that comment, Candace. Uh, you know, one is that and I think this is part of what you're saying is that it needs to be genuine, um, especially if you're a Y-based brand, but really for any of these. Um, consumers can, can see through um, if you're being um, disingenuous. They're, they're going to be able to sense that. And if you're trying to uh, position yourself either around a how or especially a why that really isn't true to who you are, that's going to eventually uh, backfire on you. Um, and that is not the case with Patagonia, right? That's part, to your point, that's why it works, is because 
it really is so true to who they are that it, it comes across as very genuine. The other point I'd want to make is, um, especially with regard to why brands, is we're not, what we're not talking about here is, again, a mission or uh, a purpose, which probably most companies, especially large companies, have, right? A lot of companies will define a mission. And most companies, especially, again, large Fortune 500 companies, have CSR or corporate uh, social responsibility platforms. And that's great. But that doesn't make them a Y brand. You know, just because they are socially responsible and, and are mission-driven doesn't mean that they actually define the very essence of their brand around their why. That's an entirely different thing and something that Patagonia and, and a few other brands have done and, and done very well. Yes, they do CSR, as do a lot of other companies, but they go beyond that, right? They're defining the very essence or meaning of their brand around their why. Blurring of the lines between mission and purpose has definitely been something that we've seen lately. Um, I think that's an interesting distinction that you just made. Let's think back to some of the brands we rattled off earlier that haven't lasted. Are there examples of heritage brands that have survived the ages because of their ability to remain credible? Yeah, I, I would say there are a number of brands that think that because they have invested so heavily into their brands and, and um, what they represent, that they have been able to not only just remain relevant over time, but actually you know, survive crises and, and really very prime times. So a brand that I, I talk about actually um, in the book is uh, BP, right? And we can think back, um, gosh, it's almost a decade now, not quite a decade ago, where they had the Deepwater Horizon uh, tragedy. Uh, and BP really took a beating uh, for, for obvious and, and very valid reasons um, in the public eye. Uh, I would argue that because they had such a strong brand, especially one that was kind of around environmental friendliness, uh, they were able to survive and, and bounce back, um, albeit it was a long journey, because of the equity that they've built up in, in that brand. Whereas I think a lot of other brands maybe wouldn't have been able to survive. In other words, they, they had um, stored up or built up equity in the brand that helped get them through very difficult times. And I think as we look to a more current date, we see other brands that are currently in battle right now and have the same question in their minds, Boeing, um, which went through, obviously, a very trying time in the past six to nine months, um, is really having the very uh, foundation of their brand tested. Do they have enough goodwill come up? Uh, do they have enough will stored up in that brand, that very strong, powerful corporate brand, to help them survive and remain trusted and remain relevant uh, with consumers and, and uh, business customers going forward? Those are great ones. One that um, we were thinking about here was Bluebell, although not as um, <laughs> not as heavy of an issue. It certainly was for them. Um, they had to pull every single product off the shelf, but because of their heritage and the love for the brand, um, consumers were willing to really ride that crisis with them and celebrated the arrival of new product back on, on uh, you know, freezer shelves once they finally made it through that crisis. So, I mean, it was enough to, to, to potentially bury the brand, but um, they did survive because they were a beloved brand. And that's, that's another, that is a great example. And, and the point there, I think, is 
when you are building, when you are, when you are engaged in brand building, yes, you need to think about what are you doing to drive immediate transactions, right? What are you doing to sell another unit, to increase your market share, um, to add another dollar to your bottom line? And, and that's all well and good and all very relevant, right? But a lot of brand building goes to uh, softer issues like equity, right? Uh, the things that are a little bit harder to measure, they're a little bit more intangible in nature, but all of the examples that we were just discussing, that's when it really matters and where what you've done and what you've invested in building very strong brand equity really pays off in a big way, right, in, in times when you really do need it. And um, other brands that are facing similar situations may not have the strength to, to survive. Right. It's like you're putting money in the bank all along and, you know, the opportunity when the customers get to come back and actually root for you is, um, I think, one of the most pristine examples of having a, a strong brand really living that brand purpose. Yeah, it, it really is. And it's so hard to coach clients, which we try to do on a daily basis, um, to think about, yes, what, what can you do from a brand perspective that moves the business forward? Again, that can be reflected in the bottom line. And, and we, we get it, right, that this is, this is business and we're all in business eventually to, to make money. Um, but you do need to think about the long term as well as the short term. And, and very often that long term is equity, right, building brand equity that can um, sustain you through good times and bad times and um, just make sure you're in it for the long run. Okay, last question for you, Mitch. What you've shared today seems so simple, yet we know so many brands fail to do it well. Why do you think some brands don't satisfy these core positioning requirements? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I would I would distinguish between the concepts of simple and easy. So I, I actually think what we have talked about is very simple. Um, and uh, very often... Uh, some of the some of the most common feedback I've received on the book is that it's very simple and easy to understand, which which I actually do take as a compliment because I do feel a lot of the concepts in there are simple, but that doesn't mean that they're easy. Um, finding that unique point of difference, again, meaningful difference, not just differentiation for the sake of differentiation, but a meaningful point of difference is not easy. Um, you need to find that intersection of something that is very important and compelling as well as something that's unique to you and your brand. I um, mean, it takes a lot of work, right? It takes a lot of trial and error, um, you know, to find that, that unique point. Um, and then to execute very consistently against it. So, um, to, so every aspect of your offering, whether it's the product and service itself or the experience, the touch points that deliver it needs to be very consistent with that point of difference. Um, it's, it, it requires a very disciplined approach to, to brand building. And it's easy, again, in, um, in this day and age, especially with digital media and um, a seemingly a new, a new platform arising every day with all of its own social norms and, and different techniques trying to keep on top of everything. It, it, it's easy to, as I mentioned earlier, revert to tactics without thinking about the underlying strategy that it's supposed to serve and to resort to copycat tactics. Well, I don't know if this is the right thing to do, but my competitors are doing it, so I'm going to do it as well. I think those are the traps that you need to avoid, and, and that's why, even though some of these concepts may seem simple, they're not always easy to follow. I could not have said that any better myself. The fact that it is simple but not easy is true, and it has kept me in this industry for 
more years than I will let you know <laughs> on this <laughs> podcast. Um, Mitch, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a great conversation. But before we head off, do you want to tell our listeners where they can find your new book? So once again, the name of the book is The Indispensable Brand, Move From Invisible to Invaluable. And it is available at most online retailers such as Amazon.com and Barnes & Noble. Um, in, is available in paperback, hard copy, and ebook format. Fantastic. So that's it for now. Be sure to check out the episode notes for links mentioned in this edition of Back of Napkin. Thanks for listening. And thank you, Sam Hottie, our amazing producer. This has been a production of Fleischman Hiller, a global public relations and marketing agency serving the world's top brands. For more information about this podcast and to listen to previous episodes, visit FleischmannHillard.com forward slash brand marketing.